0: The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever, let the church of Jesus Christ say, amen. Amen. Church, I don't want to brag, but I'm pretty good at coming up with New Year's resolutions for myself. Give me a mug of freshly roasted fireside coffee. Give me a blank notebook and a pen and a couple hours, and I will come up with the best resolutions, ranging from the easy-to-achieve, such as clean up and organize my office, to the patently absurd, like the one from 2010 in which I wrote, learn French and translate Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Some of my previous New Year's resolution lists have included things like exercise a bit more, lose a bit of weight, design a board game, write a novel, then win a novel writing prize, clean out our entire basement storage room, translate the whole New Testament from Greek, run a marathon, write and record a musical album, design and build great looking furniture for our house, finish, a doctoral dissertation. And for those keeping score at home, I have managed to achieve just three of those things in the past 20 years. The New York Times published an article in their cutter section last week in which the writers advocate getting rid of the idea of resolutions altogether. And instead, they suggest readers should develop a list of life hacks, which they call mehancements low-lift, high-reward upgrades to your personal life that will make your life a bit easier. So ditch resolutions and instead uh, do things like these intensely soporific items. Like clear your space of tripping hazards. Put trackers on the things you lose the most. Invest in a good umbrella. Store duplicate cleaning supplies where you use them the most. And not bad, but boring. I mean, my goodness. I'm all for life hacks, but don't take away my resolutions. Give me aspirational, outlandish, wide-eyed resolutions any day over things like get rid of all your disgusting sponges or drink more water. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you love the idea of making New Year's resolutions. Maybe imagining the new year as a blank slate wide open before you, a blank notebook to be written on fresh with the ink of every new day is utterly inspiring to you. Maybe writing down all of your hopes and aspirations help you prioritize what is possible and then set aside what is rather impossible. Being with you here today on the 8th day of the year 2023, a year that is still smelling as lovely as a newborn child, the tantalizing prospect of making wild New Year's resolutions is looming over the week for me. I can't wait to see what crazy things get added to my list this year. Our liturgy today, however, is fixated not necessarily on resolutions, but on baptism. The first Sunday after Epiphany in the Christian church is the day in which we remember the time when our Lord was baptized. But as we remember Jesus' baptism, we'll attempt to avoid becoming trapped in the trivia of the day as if Jesus' baptism is just a biblical version of those fake social media holidays like National Hat Day or National Bagel Day or Ditch Your Resolution Day or World Sleep Day, the days you don't even know uh, you don't even know we're real until you show up at church, and then you're supposed to act like you already knew that today was baptism of our Lord's Sunday. <laughs> of course it is. It's the second Sunday of the year. First Sunday after the Epiphany. Of course, that's the day is. But today we're going to remember. But our act of remembering Jesus' baptism, the act of retelling this story, is not our landing place, but rather it is the means to get to our landing place. Today, I am not interested in you learning more about Jesus' baptism as much as I am you understanding more about your own baptism and the promises that we make at this font whenever we celebrate the sacrament together, as we will do in just a short while. And today, we're talking about Jesus' baptism because the gospel reading from Matthew is talking about Jesus' baptism. It's a gospel text that is rather short and to the point, isn't it? Jesus, having already been born, circumcised, taught and trained in Jewish faith up north in Galilee, is now grown up. And to inaugurate his ministry as Redeemer, as Son of God, as Beloved, as God's servant, Jesus heads south and a bit east to a river outside Jerusalem so that he might join the hundreds of other people who are being baptized. The Gospel of Matthew gives us no intermediate story of Jesus' growing up years. Nothing to describe how he was raised or what his education was like or what his relationship with his parents was like when he was a teenager. You know, like if he ever rolled his eyes when his dad asked him to bring the trash can down from his room. When we left Jesus last week in Matthew's reckoning, he was still a child, an infant perhaps, or maybe an 18-month-old toddling around the family room and chasing the family's goats or chickens. But when we turn the page from Matthew chapter 2 to Matthew chapter 3, we meet Jesus again, and now that child is now a man, maybe about 30. And today that man is going to get baptized. In all four Gospel accounts, we read that Jesus was baptized. And while each puts a slightly different emphasis on the story, the basic details are the same. Jesus enters the water, is baptized, heaven opens up, a voice speaks, a dove descends, and whether that voice or that vision of heaven opening is public or private depends on the Gospel. Whether John is surprised to see Jesus also depends on the gospel. What is unique to Matthew's version is this little dialogue between John and Jesus in verses 14 and 15. Did you catch it? Just prior to him entering the water, John tries to stop Jesus from doing this act. He tries to prevent him from being baptized. John says, now you just wait a minute. He says, I need to be baptized by you why are you coming to me john had just finished describing the one who was coming after him the one who is greater than him the one with for whom he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals the one who john said was going to baptize people with not just water but with the holy spirit and with fire and now this man is showing up and he's asking john to baptize him In a baptism that symbolizes the repentance for sin. Surely this is backwards. Surely Jesus should be the one doing the baptism now. But Jesus replies to John, let this take place now. Let this baptism happen. Let it be so now, he says. For it is proper for us in this way. To fulfill all righteousness. What a weird response. Let it be so now, it is proper in this way for us to fulfill all righteousness. These words mark the first recorded words Jesus will speak out loud in Matthew's gospel. That's interesting. It's interesting because in ancient biographies, the first words that an author reports the main character said says a great deal about what the author thought was very important about that character's life. And So the first words Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel are, to paraphrase, this act of me being baptized by you, John, is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says his baptism is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Why? Why was this necessary? I think it has something to do with that last word, righteousness. When we say that word, we tend to think only of moral upstandingness, some sort of high watermark of character and morality, someone who does no wrong, but who is righteous. Righteousness. But when the Bible uses this word, it's not really about moral excellence, but it's more about acting in a way that aligns with God's intentions for humanity. Case in point is Abraham. Abraham, who was called righteous, considered righteous by God because he trusted God, but the guy was far from being a paragon of morality or excellence of character. Still, he was named righteous because he trusted God's promises in the way God hopes all humans will trust his promises. Thus, Abraham could be considered righteous. He acted in accordance to God's desires. Not morally perfect, not a Boy Scout, but righteous nonetheless. Jesus says to John that his baptism by him will fulfill all righteousness. In other words, jesus submitting to jesus to john's baptism his acceptance of this baptism as a sign of his heart and mind being aligned uh, and cleansed and renewed his doing this alongside other people this humility and meekness before god is completely in alignment with what god wants from humanity this is what god expects from his human creatures, and Jesus demonstrates this at the beginning of his ministry, because there's something, there is something about the incarnate Word of God entering the waters of the Jordan. There is something in the sight of the visible image of the invisible God walking into the muddy river where countless unwashed human beings have been. There's there's something mysterious about the ineffable wisdom of God now being pushed under cold waters. That something there is the embodiment of what true righteousness, true uh, alignment with God's purposes is. For Jesus to save us, he must become like us. The old church fathers taught it this way, that which is not assumed is not healed. If Jesus is really to heal all of our humanity, then he must begin by submitting to its weakness and injury. But more than this, I think Jesus' baptism is really a symbol of his whole entrance into our world. It's a symbol of Jesus' willingness to shed his glory and be born to a poor couple in a stable. The entrance of Christ in the water is the sign that God's decision to come among us would be humble and subversive. It would be delightfully unremarkable. It would be an entrance of little political or socioeconomic importance to the government at large. Surely, if God were to fill a human person in the way he once filled the tabernacle or temple, that person would not be found kneeling down in muddy waters, permitting himself to be washed by a wild-eyed prophet? Surely not. And yet, that is precisely where we find the incarnate deity, the God-man, the Word made flesh. We find him there in the water. The text says when Christ exited the waters, the heavens are peeled back and God's voice is heard identifying the one in the water with three descriptions. The voice says, this is my son. The voice says, the beloved. The voice says, the one with whom I am well pleased all of which are callbacks to the Old Testament. The, the son language is a callback to the king whom God says in Psalm 2, today you have become my son. This is the promise of God who, who will inherit God's promises. The king will, uh, the voice names Jesus as God's son. The beloved is a throwback to the son of Abraham, Isaac, who is called the beloved first, the, the son whom uh, Abraham loved uh, uh, loved intensely and is also called the one with whom I am well pleased A will call back to today's reading from Isaiah 42 the servant with whom God delights and with this voice the spirit descends from heaven in the way a bird descends coming to hover over and rest upon the humbled word of God he who was washed in the river of humanity it rests upon the one who bears the hope of salvation on his shoulders And because Jesus is the Son of God, because he is the Beloved, because he is the one with whom God is well-pleased, we here can take courage, for Jesus has done and was everything that we are unable to do and be. He has become the righteousness of God, the Scriptures say. He has become the image to us of all of God's intentions for humanity. Jesus is the one in the water who shows us what God truly desires from us, and then he is the one who actually does it. All of our righteous acts, the scriptures say, are worthless, unable to accomplish God's perfect will, but in Christ we are counted as righteous. One of my favorite theological statements ever of all time, period, times a million, comes from a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. It is a gorgeous piece of theology organized in questions and answers for each week of the year so that over the course of a year, somebody could rehearse the basics of what Christians believe. This, what I'm going to put up on the screen in just a minute, is question and answer number 60, taken from the 23rd week of the year. This is nearly the exact middle of Of the Catechism and this is one of my all-time favorite statements and I would love it if you would help read it with me. I'll ask the question and we'll read the answer together. The question is, how are you righteous before God? Together. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, And as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, all I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. The good news about Jesus' baptism is that it reminds us that Jesus alone has perfectly satisfied the expectations of God for the human race. Only he can be called Son and Beloved, and the one with whom God is well pleased. And yet, out of God's grace, he has chosen to look at us, every person here. We, his wayward creatures, we who are still inclined towards all manners of evil, God looks at us not On our own merit, but through the merit of Jesus Christ, and treats us as if we had never sinned. That is the gospel good news we treasure as Christians. Someone say, Praise the Lord. Lord. Now, all of this brings us back to resolutions, sort of. The Christian church does not really make New Year's resolutions, we make new weeks resolutions. We we make new days resolutions. Some of us maybe need to make new hours resolutions. We recognize our utter inability to do God's will, but nevertheless, we strive every hour of every day towards embodying God's will however imperfectly we can. We resolve every day of the week to try to follow Christ, to serve those in need, to help support the suffering, to protect the weak. We resolve that this week we will try to be more patient. We resolve that tomorrow we will practice our generosity better. We resolve that this afternoon we will choose to forgive rather than remain bitter. And each week we make these resolutions right here at this font, this bowl of water standing in a wooden base that is always on display in our worship. And every week, if you've been here for more than one week, you've known that every week we pour water into this spot publicly, openly, audibly, decisively. And every week we do so, we are reminded that we can only love God because God loved us first. God forgave our sins even when we could care less. And god named us children of god when we were still nameless orphans in the world for those of us who were baptized whether at this font or at another font of a different church the sign of water poured is a reminder to us of our own baptisms the entrance to the christian church and the christian faith is a bowl of water here we see the clean water poured out, symbolizing that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, our sins have been washed away, and we are presented to God as blameless. Here, the water poured out reminds us of the blood of Christ that poured out from his wounded side, the sacrifice which ransomed us from the dominion of evil. Here, the water poured out reminds us that that sacrifice is the foundation upon which all our faith is constructed. Those who have been baptized are reminded by this symbol that we, too, have been washed. Whether as an infant writhing in a minister's arms, or a child standing on a stool, or as an adult kneeling as water is poured, On your head whether the water immersed you or whether it sprinkled you whether you wore ripped jeans and a t-shirt or a spotless white robe if you were baptized in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit you were baptized into the Christian Church and if you have been baptized and the scripture says you have been called to service in Christ's name you no matter how old you are no matter how young you are you have been called if you wear the cloth of these waters on your body you have been summoned by god to follow christ no matter how many things from your past are still haunting you no matter how many insecurities you carry with you no matter how many issues have been unresolved between you and your parents you no matter how little money you have You, no matter how old you feel or how unremarkable you think you are, if you have passed through these waters, you have been called, empowered, and made ready to follow our Lord Christ. The scripture says that those whom God called, God made righteous. And those whom God righteous, he also glorified. So what then, the apostle Paul says, are we going to say about this? If God is for us, who is against us? Who will separate us from God's love? Will trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or violence? No, I am convinced, the apostle says, that nothing will separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have been called, you have been empowered. You have been joined to the body of Christ. We call the church. Nothing you can do and nothing that is done to you can ever separate you from God's love. And so today, as we remember Christ's baptism, we're invited to renew our own baptisms. As we celebrate the sacrament in the life of two of our children, you are invited to revive your own baptismal vows, to resolve again this day, to live out your baptisms, to come to worship each week this year and hear the good news about Jesus, and then to go out and put it into practice. To practice doing things that Jesus did. To rehearse the lines Jesus gives us. To take the words of scripture and then embody them. Church, today God is calling to you. Over the voices in your head telling you you're not good enough. Over the voices in your workplace telling you you don't work hard enough. Over the voices in your mind that tell you you don't do enough or that you don't earn enough. The voice from heaven which anointed our Lord in the Jordan is calling to you, reminding you that you have been claimed by God. The voice and the spirit from heaven which descended upon our Lord has been given to you and is guiding you in your life, giving you the power to end addiction, to terminate selfishness, and to ignore obsession. The one who was washed in the river is the one who washed you clean at your baptism. He is the one who gave his life so that we might be free. And so as we prepare to come to this font to baptize this morning, bring yourself to these waters, and let us allow this sacrament to renew our own baptisms. And might we resolve to go out and put these promises into practice in our lives. Church, I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.